Give me liberty or give me death. I have a dream. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Most of you are familiar with these famous sayings and the beginnings of speeches and some just statements, but those are words in a sense that completely change history. Or, or if they didn't, if the words themselves didn't change history, at least they were spoken at a time when history was doing a pivot and was, the world was changing. Well, the, the, there were words though that were uttered some 2,000 years ago that really did changed the world. And they really did represent a turning point in human history. And it was an angelic announcement. And it was this. He is not here. He is risen. Changed everything. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular, when you take them together, that event is the most significant event in the history of the world. Everything, everything changed after that moment. And, and so there are universal implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In some years at Easter, we, we look at those. We look at how the church was birthed and how the world was literally changed. I mean, whether you're a believer, whether you believe the resurrection or not, the world was changed because of these events. But, but today, we're not focusing so much on those wide, worldwide uh, history uh, traversing universal implications, but we're going to look at the more individual personal implications. And that's what we're going to be in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. We have extra copies of the scriptures in the back. If you'd like one, you can go grab one, look on your smartphone, look on the person next to you. But we're going to be looking in John 20 and we'll see is this, the, the, the reality of the empty tomb hasn't just affected mankind. It's, it's, I'll just say personally, it's affected this man. And it's affected many of you deeply. And that's what we'll see in John 20. is the, the personal, individual implications of the resurrection on lives. As then it unfolding into the wider world. Uh, one, there was a British pastor of the 19th century, I think, as, as he really laid hold of this reality. It was an, on an Easter Sunday morning. He was preparing to preach that Sunday morning on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Reading through the account that he would preach and looking over his, his sermon and he said this, this is the quote, the thought of the risen Lord broke in upon me as it had never before. Christ is alive! I said to myself, alive! And then I paused, alive! And then I paused again, alive! Can that really be true? Living as I myself am? I got up and walked about repeating, Christ is living, Christ is living. It was to me a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it, but not until that moment did I feel sure about it. And how I've been praying for us today is that I, I hope and I pray that we would have our own version of that experience today. That this wouldn't just be some story that we're familiar with that we just kind of dust off and and... And go through again, uh, just like we did last year. But that God's Spirit would open our eyes to see the reality that Christ is risen. And that we would believe it more deeply than we've ever believed it before. And it would affect us unlike it's ever affected us before. So that's what we'll see this morning. 
John chapter 20, and we're going to work through this passage and just kind of work through the story together, and then we'll talk about some of the implications to our lives at the end. John 20, verse 1. I just want us to enjoy and see the wonderful riches. I'm not... There are, again, I've preached sermons where I'm trying to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why it's true. That's not, I'm not even going there today. And if, so if you doubt and if you're a skeptic, I'm glad you're here and I have, I have, I would be glad to talk with you. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm thankful. We're honored that you're present here. But I'm, just so you know, I'm not going to try to lay the proofs out for the resurrection. I simply want to proclaim it. I just want us to just see the story. And this is truth. Verse 1, John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Let's stop there for just a moment. First, who is this Mary Magdalene? Mary was a part of Jesus' ministry team. We see this in Luke chapter 8. There was this group of folks that traveled around with Jesus and there was particularly a group of women who went around with Jesus and the disciples and kind of meeting physical needs and, and food and, and housing and all of those kinds of things, just caring for the team. And, and, and again, in that, in that first century life, life was difficult. They were always camping out. And if you camp out, it's hard. And, and so it involved teamwork. And so she was a part of that team. She had once been possessed by seven demons. You also read that in Luke 8. Jesus cast those demons out of her. She was from the city of Magdala. That's why she's Mary Magdalene. She's the Magdalene. Just as Jesus of Nazareth. A Nazarene. He, she is from Magdala. Magdala was what we would kind of call today a resort city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you can picture the map of Jerusalem, Galilee, and the Dead Sea. And so on the western shore of Galilee, it's the city of Magdala. It had great wealth. But it was also a, a very wicked city. It was known for its sexual immorality. Tradition says that Mary had been a prostitute. Now we don't know that. Scripture does not say that. So we're not certain if that's true or not. But her hometown would have been full of prostitutes. And, and so it's very possible. But either way, it's not a compliment to be called a Magdalene. That was not something you would want to hear. But what is clear about this Mary of Magdala, is that she came from a very broken past. And until she met Jesus, her life was a wreck. But when she met Jesus, he put her life back together. And possessed by demons, known for, again, from this place of immorality, and Christ, Christ saved this life and made a beautiful thing out of this wreck. And what really stands out about Mary, if you look in any of the gospel accounts, we're talking about Mary Magdalene, what, what you see is she has this incredible love for Jesus and loyalty to Him. That's undeniable in every account of her. Where was Mary when the one, the one who had changed, completely changed her life, where was, where was she when He was dying on the cross? She was there. She wouldn't leave. He, she, he, he's there, he's dying this violent, slow, painful, unjust, horrific death. And she just cannot leave the foot of the cross. She's fixed on him. And then, as soon as the Sabbath is over, Jesus is 
buried in a tomb. And as soon as the Sabbath is over, the text says, before it was even daylight, she's racing to the tomb to be there where Jesus has been buried. First one there. Someone said she was the last at his cross and first at his grave. She stayed longest there and was soonest here. So, so what is it that accounted for such great love, the love that Mary had for Jesus? Well, what was it? I, I think we can explain it from an, another passage in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, you have the story of a woman who had a reputation for sexual immorality. Some, again, some say this is Mary. It's not indicated in the text, so we don't know for sure. But this, this woman, this kind of seedy woman, she crashes a dinner party that was hosted by this Jewish religious leader in honor of Jesus, this prophet who was in, in town. So she just busts in there. She comes in weeping, using her hair. Yeah, yeah it's a great illustration, I know. Using her hair to, to wipe his feet as she, as she uses her tears and alabaster, expensive alabaster, to wipe his feet. She's hugging, kissing his feet. And there's a Pharisee at the table, Texas, because Jesus knows what's in a man. He knows what people are thinking. John tells us this in John 2. He knows what's in man. And there's this Pharisee who's thinking, clearly, clearly he isn't who he says he is. Because if he knew what kind of wicked woman was touching him, <laughs> he, he would have nothing to do with her. Text says Jesus knew what he was thinking. And then he tells a story to at this dinner party. And it's a story um, about these two debtors. But the, let me just get to the, the punchline of the story is this. Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. And then the principle Jesus lays out is, is the one who is forgiven much loves much. There's almost this mathematical measurable correspondence between our love for Jesus, the fervency of our love for Christ, and the degree to which we understand the great debt of sin that we've been forgiven by Him. The more we realize we've been forgiven, the more we, are, the more we love Him. So this Mary of Magdala, I think this is what explains the love that she has for Jesus. This once broken, once empty Mary rushes to the grave while it's still dark to attend to Jesus, Jesus' body. And as Pat alluded to, what is what does she expect to find when she got to the grave that morning? An empty tomb? I mean, it's Easter Sunday, right? Of course she did. No, she expected to find a dead body. She wanted to find a dead body. She wanted to find a decaying smelling corpse of the one that she loved so dearly. That's what she was looking for. That's what she was hoping for. She, along with the other, there were other women that came also, according to Luke, they went to the tomb with spices to finish the burial process, as was the custom. And so when you put the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke and John together, when you put them together, you see apparently Mary got there ahead of the other women because she's, again, I think she's probably sprinting there before the sun has even come up. And she saw that the stone had been taken away and she panicked. 
She wasn't excited. Jesus' words about rising from the dead on the third day did not come flooding into her mind at the time. She's terrified and distraught. And so, same with the other women who show up. When they show up, they, they see two angels, we're told. And the, and the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And the answer is, they weren't looking for anybody living. They were looking for the dead among the dead. I mean, Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, it's thrilling, it's exciting, it's a happy time for us. Because we, where we sit today in terms of redemptive history... But so we wear bright colors and pastels, and our brother Dave Huther, he he like he dressed for Easter every day, every Sunday, and with his bright pastel shirts, and and uh, he would he would mock the elders if we were dressed too morosely with dark and black, and he would critique our our dress every Sunday if we weren't wearing anything bright. Um, but 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 these women, they wouldn't be wearing anything; they would be wearing black. They were mourning, they were grieving. First Easter morning represent, represented tragedy, sadness, hopelessness, fear. Just, it was terrible for these women and the disciples. So verse 2, again, so she ran, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So her knee-jerk reaction is to go to those who were closest to Jesus, to Peter and John, and to tell them. And what does she tell them? What is she assuming? Someone has taken Jesus' corpse. Grave robbers, perhaps, or or Jesus' enemies, and he had many, and those who had accused him unjustly, and maybe the betrayer, or that, that, that somebody's taken his body. And you think about all that Mary's experienced over the last... 48 or so hours. And what she's feeling at this moment. She's seen Jesus die this awful, unjust, violent death. Standing there watching the process take place. And then on top of the horror of his death. To add insult to injury. Someone has had the gross indecency. To steal his body. And in her mind probably no doubt make further sport of him. Display it somewhere. This was not uncommon. Criminals kind of to, 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 to as use them as an example and make sport of them even in their dead body. It was just more than she could bear. Verse 3. She goes tells Peter and John. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. We're not told why they couldn't, Peter couldn't keep up. Maybe he was older. Maybe he carried a few extra pounds, but he does not make it there first. Verse five, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John gets there first. He looks in, sees the cloths, but he doesn't go into the tomb. So, so Peter and John again, they're running together. They leave at the same time, running to the tomb. Peter falls behind. John goes ahead, reaches the tomb first, looks in the tomb, sees that it's empty, sees the cloths lying there, but doesn't go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came, following him, and went right into the tomb. Peter is slower 
But he's, he's, this just fits his personality. He's impulsive. He's going in. Didn't care what's, what's, nothing's gonna stop him. And so he just bolts in, throwing caution to the wind. He saw, verse 6, he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. There's something happening here in the text. It's not as obvious in the English translation. So if you don't know the, the, the New Testament of the Bible from Matthew through Revelation is written in the Greek language. It was written originally in the Greek language and thankfully we have it translated into English. And so, but there are, there are, there are words sometimes that, that translate the same into English but they're unique words in the Greek and that's what we have here. There are three different words here used for seeing. Three different words in the Greek here. The first word, you see it in verse 5. John looked into the tomb. That's just a simple word for seeing. I saw the door back there. I see pollen falling from the sky. And, and uh, so it's just seeing. And so he noticed the grave clothes. He didn't think much about it. He just saw it. Saw the tomb was empty. Second word for seeing here is that... <coughs> excuse me. When Peter gets there, text says he saw... The linen cloths. And, and, and that, that Greek word is the word where we get our word theory, theory or theorize. So Peter comes in and he's, he's taking a long, careful look and he's theorizing what has happened here. He's trying to make sense of it. He, he, he's paying close attention. He notices how the clothes are arranged. That it looks as if Jesus has just kind of dissolved through the clothes. And so just as his body had been laid out there, the grave clothes are just laying in place. And then he notices that over here, the cloth that covered his face is, has been folded up and set elsewhere. You notice how specific the text is? It's just showing. So Peter's taking, he's looking and he, what is what has happened here? He's trying to make sense of this scene that's in front of his eyes. He's piecing it together. Clearly, Jesus' body was not stolen. I mean, grave robbing was risky business, and it carried stiff penalties. And so, it's not if you were if you were robbing the grave of Jesus, you wouldn't come. One, it was heavily guarded by by soldiers, so that was not really an option. This massive stone, but. But even if somebody was bold enough to try to take on these soldiers, move the stone, rob the body of Jesus, they're not going to take the time to lay the clothes back out and to gently fold up the cloth that covered his face and set it neatly in the corner. They're going to they're gonna get in and out as quick as they can. And so Peter's trying, he's seeing this, he's theorizing, what is taking place? And then there's a third word, and it's John here. John goes in, the text says he saw... And that's a different word for seeing. It's a word that means to see with understanding. See with understanding. John really saw what was what had taken place. And the text says that he believed. And, and right there in the empty tomb, you have the first person in the history of the world that has believed in the risen Christ. John is the first one that it clicks for. Verse 9 says that for as yet, up, up until that point, when John believed, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. As often as Jesus had told them that he'd be betrayed and that he would be 
crucified and that he would rise again on the third day, they, they, didn't, they didn't get it. And they, they hadn't connected what the Old Testament prophesied about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They hadn't connected that with what Jesus himself had said and what they're looking at and experiencing right here in front of their own eyes until here. And John gets it. He sees. He really sees. And he believes. And we know that by the end of Jesus' life and his ministry, he must have been talking about the fact that he would rise often. Because even his enemies knew that this was something Jesus was saying. That he was going to die and he would rise again on the third day. That's why they put the guards at the tomb. They're afraid that, that, that Jesus' disciples might steal his body and claim that he'd risen because Jesus had predicted that he would. So they put guards, they put the heavy stone. And so if he'd spoken about his resurrection enough that even Jesus' enemies kind of understood understood that and heard about it you you have to figure that his disciples and those closest traveling companions of Jesus must have heard about it again and again and again as the the hour drew closer but still they missed it and even after they saw the empty tomb they marveled and they believed but we'll see it's not until they really see Jesus with their own eyes that all the lights really come on for them and they really get it so what do, what do Peter and John do? They're seeing this scene, believing, marveling. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Kind of, kind of anticlimactic, I just confess. Seems like a letdown, but you think about what's happened here. Well, one, where, where are they going to go? They don't know where to find him. Um, they, they don't know that yet, but and you think of the, the whirlwind that this day has been for them. The last few days, we could say. The thoughts they must have been experiencing. From deepest grief at Jesus' death and the manner in which He died. And then to, the, to their own regrets and the guilt and the shame that they had deserted Jesus at His darkest hour. And they had all run away in, in, in hiding from... And Peter turned his back on the Lord, denied Him three times. So they go there, and then now they see the empty tomb. Things are coming back to them, and they're trying to make sense of this. They're filled with fear, filled with hope. So I can just imagine Peter and John that Sunday afternoon just sitting, staring at the wall, or looking out the window, just trying to, trying to piece this all together. Trying to piece together what the Old Testament scriptures prophesied. Trying to, remembering what Jesus had said about that he would rise and, and, and what they saw in the empty tomb and, and, and just trying to put these things together in their head and, and so that's what they do. What about Mary? Does she go home? No, no. Mary's left alone. She's there by herself, standing outside the tomb. She's lonely. She's uninformed. She doesn't, she hasn't, the, the pieces haven't been connected for her yet, and she's just sobbing. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping. Now don't, don't think that she's just got a few little sniffles and a little tear running down her cheek. This is that, this is the word literally wailing. 
this eastern death whale, if you've ever traveled to Jerusalem or you've, even in other Middle Eastern countries where you, you see this as part of the funeral procession, this, this loud wailing from the deepest parts of her aching heart. She's just screaming and sobbing uncontrollably. Because again, she still doesn't, she doesn't even know yet what Peter and John are thinking. So she stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she finally stooped in to look into the empty tomb. So she, she first she can't even bring herself to go in. The, the grief is overwhelming. But, but she also can't bring herself to leave. Because of the love she has for Jesus. She just kind of stoops in to look. She's not charging in like Peter. She's just looking in. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So they're just there guarding, in a sense, the tomb. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Now, I confess, at this point I'm I'm feeling... Starting to feel a little less sympathy for Mary. And I'm getting kind of frustrated. Because I'm thinking here. Come on Mary. Angels. <laughs> Empty tomb. Grave clothes. You see something something big has happened here. Verse 14. Having said this. She turned around. I don't know if the angels motioned for her. To turn around. To do so. But. But she turns around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Why, why wouldn't she recognize Jesus? The one she loved, the one she'd spent so much time with, the one she was just fixed on. Was it the tears streaming down her face? Like possibly. I mean, it, he looked different, no doubt. I mean, the last time she had seen him, he was on the cross and bloodied and, and just... Just this shell of a of a body, and and he looked terrible. And now all the effects of the curse, of the fall, of sin, of death—they're all removed from Jesus. And so he looks very different than the last time she saw him. Also, she probably wasn't ex- again. She's not expecting to see him. That's probably part of it. I mean, you've have you ever. You know somebody really well. I mean, it could be a family member, a friend, a neighbor. And, and you go someplace where you would never in the world expect to see them there. And I've heard of, you know, you traveling in Europe or something and you see a neighbor. And, and you don't even, you can't even recognize them almost. It just takes a minute because they're so out of place. This is Mary. She's not at all expecting to find a live Jesus. She's only thinking dead body. And so that may be part of the reason she doesn't recognize him. But, but there he is. It's Jesus standing there. And it's, and it's worth noting that the first resurrection appearance that Jesus makes is to Mary Magdalene. He's just conquered sin and death. World history has hinged on what just happened. And yet he, it's this insignificant small woman with this broken past and he, this woman who loves him most and she needs to be cared for and he takes time to do it. She's the first witness 
to the resurrection. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she says, why why are you weeping? As if to say, don't you remember what I said? What I'd said so many times. And whom are you seeking? Are are you seeking the Messiah, the one that God promised that his Holy One would not undergo decay? She doesn't recognize, not just doesn't recognize his form from behind, but she doesn't recognize Jesus' voice. Again, because she's still, she's just thinking corpse. So she's saying, sir, if you if you know what happened to his body, if you, if you, if you personally, or if I have to go personally find a swollen, stinking body and carry it back myself, I will do it. You just tell me where it is. That's what she's saying. This relentless, persistent love for Jesus. Let me just pause. We've kind of said a lot about Mary. Just one application from her life. I think there's something we can learn from here. For some, for some of you, there there is no joy, and there are no tears. You you lack Mary's zeal. You lack her weeping, and you also lack her joy that she has and love. Maybe your religion is. It's kind of empty. It's flatline. And you just, just, it's just a matter of duty. You were raised in church, you go to church, just because that's what you do and what you're supposed to do. But, the, but I would say the reason you don't have the joy or the weeping of Mary is because, the, the reason you don't have the, as big a heart as Mary is because you may not grasp the enormity of the debt to which you've been freed. How much you've been forgiven. So you, you, if we have a shallow, superficial understanding of our own brokenness and hopelessness apart from Christ, we're not going to have the fullness of love and devotion and zeal for Christ. We, you, maybe you think, I know people who need a radical change and who've needed a radical change by Christ, but I'm a good person. Well, if that's your response, you're never going to know this. All of us are desperate need for Christ to change our lives. No matter what stuff you is a part of your past, it doesn't matter. We're, we're all in desperate need for Christ to change us. And until we see ourselves as sinful as we really are, we'll never have the heart for Christ that Mary has. But verse 16, back to the story. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She, she doesn't recognize woman, because that's not how Jesus spoke to her, but her name, Mary. She's heard Jesus say that many, many times. And so she turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So the scales are removed from her eyes. The scales are removed from her faith. The scales are removed from her hope. And just light floods her soul. We know from verse 17 that she clings to Jesus, hugging Him perhaps, or just bowing before Him on the ground, just grasping His feet. I mean, you parents, you know the if you've ever lost your child for five or ten minutes even. Maybe you're in a playground, we've had that experience, in a public park or 
or at some event and and when you're reunited after you're just frantically searching for someone, you're reunited with your child. You just squeeze them. You almost kill them, but you you just squeeze them because you're so glad to have them back. I mean, this is the picture here. Mary's just clinging to Jesus. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What is What is that about? You say, this is not Jesus saying, don't touch me, woman. It's not it. It's not, don't, you know, watch the, watch the threads, you know, these are clean clothes now. Don't, you, you, don't contaminate me with your sin and with your filth and with your past. That's not it at all. In fact, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, touch me, feel the scars. This is real. This is my body. This is literal. It's not a ghost. This is so, that's not it. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. Why does Jesus say this? Because everything has changed. It's different now. So Mary says, Rabboni, teacher. Then she clings to Jesus. Mary's joy after her sorrow comes from thinking that, okay, things are going to be like they used to be, just like old times. I have my teacher back, and so he's going to tell us what to do and how to live, and we're going to listen to him and do what he says, and and we'll be, we'll follow him around. It's going to be, we're going to have the same kind of relationship we had before. And so her joy is rooted in the physical, material presence of Jesus. And we understand that. I'm not sliding her for this, but Jesus is correcting something in her thinking. Her joy is not yet rooted in the fact that Jesus has conquered sin and death and will ascend to the Father and be seated at the Father's throne to make intercession for his people. So Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. Things are different now. There's a a new way to hold me. It's not the old way. It's a better way. Jesus is, you could say, taking the training wheels off for Mary here. We know about training wheels in our household. We have had four kids that have all used training wheels on bicycles. And they're all out of them, thankfully. Uh... And so training wheels, kids, when, when it gets to that point, I dread it because <laughs> it's work for the parent and my back sore from leaning over trying to hold them up and trying to get them. And, and, but, but when you, when kids are reluctant to take, most kids are reluctant to take training wheels off because bike riding is really, really fun for them when they get really good with the training wheels. And they zip around and they turn sharp and they don't fall over and they get to how to maneuver that thing. So it's, it's so much fun and it's hard to convince them that it will be better if we actually learn to ride without them. That's a hard sell, parents. <laughs> because it's going to involve falls. It's going to involve skin knees and hydrogen peroxide and band-aids and, and crying and, but we know as parents it's gonna be better. It's going to be so much more fun for you if you can learn to ride without the training wheels. You've got so much more freedom. Well, this is, this is, this is what Mary, Mary's thinking that the best possible scenario is if she can have Jesus back just like he was before. But Jesus has something better. He has something better for you and for me too. He's saying, I'm ascending to the Father. That's better. It's better. Last words Jesus will say and that the great in the Great Commission, Matthew twenty eight, there is Behold, I am with you always. 
He's going to send His Holy Spirit. He's going to be constantly present with us. Not just physically, materially. He's not going to be limited by His physical presence with His people. He's going to be constantly, really present with His people always. So verse, into verse 17, Jesus says to her, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Again, said, I've noted this before, but notice that He calls His disciples, My brothers. It's the first time this is used by Jesus of his disciples. He, he doesn't say, you go tell those losers who abandoned me and deserted me in my darkest hour of need. You go tell them that I want to see them. He says, you go tell my brothers. Tell my brothers. This is grace, 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 grace. He's saying there, there's, there's going to be a fellowship. There's going to be an intimacy with me that's possible, a clinging to me that's beyond anything you can imagine, anything you've ever experienced before during my earthly ministry. I'm ascending to the Father. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, first witness, I have seen the Lord. And that He had said these things to her. What a day. (laughs) What a day. I mean, you just think of, put yourself, import yourself into this first Resurrection Sunday. I mean, I, I just, by Sunday evening, I, if you've been in those scenarios, I'm sure the Huthers were here just on Thursday after the whirlwind of the day. You're, you're sitting now as a family and it's quiet in the house and just whew, thinking about all that's happened. I mean, you've had those scenarios, these major moments in life and the, and you have some quiet to sit and just process all that's taking place. Just put yourself in their shoes. I, Sunday evening, that first resurrection Sunday. I can't imagine that they didn't make multiple trips to the empty tomb. Back and forth to just see it again. And go back and, oh, let's go see how it was again. What, how did you, you thought it was like this. I thought, it, let's go see. Going back and forth to the tomb, I see the disciples sitting around together again, talking about these things, telling what they've seen and heard, piecing together sightings and conversations and angelic appearances and scripture and Jesus' words and kind of put all these things together. And that's what you find in verse 19. All the disciples are gathered together in this house. And, and, and they're hopeful, yes, but they're also afraid. They got all the doors locked, batting down the hatches here. Because they're, they're scared. They're, they're paranoid. They're huddled together. They're, for, they're fearing that the authorities at any moment are going to burst in. And yet Jesus shows up. And He comes to them. And they're transformed into this faith-filled, courageous, joyful, bold, fearless missionary force that the Scripture says in Acts upset the world. Changed everything. And the ripples of that are felt even this morning as we're gathering here on this Resurrection Sunday. Nothing, nothing new. We proclaim the same message. Christ crucified, risen again for sinners. But it's that, it's that reality, it's that message that has again changed the world. It has. Scriptures were fulfilled. Sin was atoned for. The church was birthed. There was a, there was this cosmic, there were cosmic shock waves that were sent out through the spiritual unseen world, angels and demons. And so there's this massive moment in world history at Jesus' death and resurrection. But as I said at the beginning, the, the 
gospel accounts, they don't focus on those universal implications of the empty tomb. They, they, they focus on individual lives that are changed. Deeply personal, deeply individual. At the most significant moment in world history, Jesus doesn't assemble a large crowd and say, Here I am! What does He do? First time, He says a name, Mary. Mary. It's small. Doesn't fit. It's not proportionate to the scope of what's taking place. When the pastor said his his people are not mere numbers in a book, they are individual people with individual needs, and he knows them through and through. And we see this throughout John twenty here. He appears to this woman, Mary, then to Peter, then John, then Thomas, then a small group of close followers, then two men on the road to Emmaus. I mean, this is Jesus's mo. His personal, particular love. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed history. But this is what I really want you to hear this morning. It can change your life. And it has changed many of our lives here today. We're we're preaching through the gospel according to John. That's why I thought we would look at this account this year. We're preaching through each week. I invite you, if you're a guest here today, we'll we'll be back in in John in a couple weeks. But you come back next week. Howard, our founding pastor, will be preaching from Romans 3 next week, but we're working our way through John's Gospel and just read a few verses from John's Gospel that other places in, in this account of, of John that just kind of, again, clarify why he's writing and what this should mean for us. The very purpose of John's Gospel, we've said many times, John 20, verse 31, these things are written, everything he's written in this account, these 21 chapters, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God, and get this, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So we believe in Jesus and have life in His name. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in me, though he die, and we all will, yet shall he live. We will live after we die. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So God offers to you and me eternal life, abundant life. You can live even when you die, live forever in heaven with the Lord. And also your life can be different now. It's a different quality of life. I mean, there are, do, do you know the abundant life that Jesus offers? Do you know that in your life? Or are you merely it's kind of existing? There's this emptiness. There are several metaphors that you see in the Gospels that speak of, of this invitation, of this offer of Christ. He, he speaks to those who are thirsty. You resonate, resonate with that word. I don't mean physically thirsty, but your soul is thirsty. You're dry. He speaks to those who are thirsty and He offers to them living water and Himself. He speaks to those who are weary and He offers them rest. Are you tired? Just tired, trying to be good enough, trying to just be better than you've been before, and you're trying to keep your life together. Are you tired? Jesus offers rest. Come to me. Or you feel like you're in darkness and confused. Jesus offers light. To the dead, Jesus offers life. I mean, the, the living dead. You can, you can manage to avoid many problems in this world. You can buy your way out of problems. You can, can think your way out of problems. But there is one problem that none of us can get around. And that's the problem of death. 
We're all going to die. The statistics are very impressive. One in one persons die. Um, you and I are always just one, one, our next breath away from the vastness of eternity that lies beyond the grave. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for that? How are you going to face death? Are you thinking, I'm just going to risk it? Just eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we die. Is that how you're thinking? Just kind of living it up because this, this is it? Are you thinking you're, you're going to be good enough to get on God's good side? Try to be a moral person. Try to be better than those around you. Do some kind deeds and try not to really mess things up and do a lot of bad stuff. Are you going to rely upon what a priest told you a long time ago or some childhood ritual, baptism? Are you going to trust in your family ties and your money and your intellect? What are you, what are you, how are you preparing to face that last great enemy death? Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul's speaking to some very intelligent, sophisticated, uh, smart, well-to-do, philosophical movers and shakers of his day. And he, and he delivers them and he preaches this, what we've just said, the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says many other things, but he wraps up the message to them saying that he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. What does that mean for us? Judgment is coming. We better be ready. And then he says this, and of this, of this Certainty that judgment is coming. He has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. We can be certain judgment is coming because Christ has risen from the dead. And so are you prepared for that day? Are you, are you ready to stand before the judge of all the earth and make your case? Why you should have life and not be punished forever? Let me, let me go ahead and tell you that you and I have no case. We can't, we can't plead it. God is holy. He is perfect. He is without any sin. You and I are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that if you commit one transgression, you're guilty of them all. To be fit for heaven, you have to be perfect, just as God is perfect. One sin disqualifies us. And, and so never in a billion lifetimes can you, can, you, can you pull that off. So where's the hope for us? Well, Jesus came. And He did what we can never do. He lived this... This perfect life. He never sinned. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He was tempted to sin just like we are, but he never sinned. And yet he died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins. That was why he came. He came to be a sacrifice, a willing sacrifice to die for our sins. And so, so yes, people put Jesus to death on the cross. There were humans involved in the, in the mock trial and then the injustice that was involved. But there was more going on. He wasn't simply a victim of human injustice. He was a willing sacrifice for sinners, taking the punishment we deserve from God for our sin. And he died as our substitute. He lived the life we couldn't live and he paid the debt that we could never pay on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Literally, bodily. And so Romans 10.9, you have this offer, this invitation. If anyone, if you should confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you can be saved. That's You and I will die. Yes, we will. But we can be saved by faith in Christ. To live even when we die. And then he goes on, verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, is declared righteous by God, is declared perfect, declared fit for heaven. 
the qualification that's, that's necessary to enter heaven, we are declared that by faith. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So I just ask you, are you, are you afraid to die? Are you prepared to meet death? I'm not trying to be morbid here, but I'm trying to be re- real. That We're face to face with this reality when we come to this passage. You don't have to be afraid. No matter how you walked into here today, no matter what is part of your past or part of your present, how guilty you feel, how unworthy you feel of God's love, Jesus offers life to you today. He does. And it was, it was the love of God that sent His own Son to die in your place. The most famous verse we, you, in Scripture, for God so loved the world. He loved you. That He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me pray. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not received the gift of eternal life that is offered through Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be that day. That this would be an Easter unlike any other for them. That this would be one of those those days that they look back on for days, weeks, months, years to come, however long they live on this earth, God, with gratitude that that they were here, they heard the gospel, and you worked in their lives, and they believed, and they received eternal life, and their life was forever changed. So if there's anyone who's tired, trying to be good enough, if there's anyone who's thirsty, and there's just, just deep dissatisfaction with life, and there's guilt and shame for their past, and the way they're living even now, God, there is this, this offer of the gospel. Come to me. Be changed. Believe in me. Find rest. Find living water. Find life. If if anyone here has not tasted of that, I pray that they would do so today. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.